Our scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 7, 28 through 8, 17. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, as we come before you at this time once more this morning, we praise you and we thank you first and foremost that we have the ability to gather here together today to worship you, to cry out to you, to call unto you, to praise you, to preach your word, to study your word, and Lord, to show our fealty to you because you are worthy of everything. Lord, we pray, just please help us. Help us in the service of you. Help us to honor and glorify you. And please forgive us where we might fail you. We ask these things in Jesus' most holy and precious name. And all the Lord's people said, amen. You may be seated. Uh, good morning. So this morning we find ourselves looking at the gospel according to Matthew, as we have been doing. We've been walking through the gospel of Matthew, uh, or the gospel according to Matthew, as a church here for several weeks now. Uh, we, we started the Sermon on the Mount, Jamie did, on the 25th of September, and last week Austin finished it for us on the 6th of November. And then now you come to the opportunity that the Lord and Jamie and the elders of the church have given me to preach, and the title of the sermon that I have given this morning, uh, Lord help me to give here in a minute, is The Magnanimity of the King of Kings. 
Now, that may be a word or may not be a word that is in your vernacular. Uh, it comes from the Latin, and it means to be of great soul. And so as you think of the magnanimity of the King of Kings, first and foremost, Jesus is Jehovah's salvation. He was named Jesus, and in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, it outright says that his name means Jehovah's salvation. But not only is he mag magnanimous, because he is Jehovah's salvation, the Son of God, but also Jesus is the source, author, and founder of every good thing. All the high ideals of all of mankind. He manifests all the virtues. He is the author of all the virtues. And so he has magnanimity. And that leads me to point one, and the context here, not only are we going to look at the context of the gospel according to Matthew, uh, but I want to hopefully get in your, your mind a reason why Matthew goes to the point of saying that the people were astonished because Jesus taught with authority, not like their scribes. So that you have an idea of, of the context when Jesus goes up on the, on the mount, preaches that sermon, and they were astonished. So go all the way back to the beginning, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with the Lord. And the Lord had created all things, and after he had created Adam and Eve, and he said, it was all very good. And yet, Adam chose his wife above the Lord's command, and he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin entered the world, and then, since then, the perversion of everything. But as you look at various times, not only is Jesus was, is, and will always be the yearning of everybody's soul, but when you look throughout time, it was both Jew and Gentile who looked for a king, who looked for someone who was worthy to lead us, someone who was worthy of our fealty, someone worthy to tell us what ought we be doing, what ought we to do with our lives, what is the point of our purpose here, what can we get engaged in that is worthy of our energies, someone who will lead us and be worthy of that leading, such that by the time of Samuel, the, Lord, the Lord's people rejected him as Lord. Because for whatever reason, there's something about us humans that we have trouble following ideas and ideals and teachings rather than somebody with meat on their skin standing right in front of us telling us what to do. So they wanted a king like all the other nations. Samuel warned them about the abuse of authority. He went great lengths and said, and said all the things that the king would do. And Saul basically did all those things that Samuel had warned them about. And then the Lord sent Samuel to find someone that would be better, that would be more worthy of him, and he goes, finds a shepherd, David. And David, it said that he was a man after God's own heart. Yet, David's not the hero. Because David broke every one of the commandments in his affair with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Then David's son, 
who was king, Solomon, Solomon had enough sense to say, Lord, grant me wisdom to rule your people well. Meaning he had some kind of understanding that to be king, you must be worthy to be king. Because all these people who are going to follow you look to you. So he prayed for wisdom, and because that was worthy to be prayed for and much needed for a king, the Lord granted that unto him, and he became the wisest man that ever lived, second to Jesus. But then, what happened? He went astray too, led astray by pagan-worshipping wives that he had come brought unto himself because of allyships with various kingdoms that were pagan-worshippers. And then the kingdom divided with his son. It was divided and you end up with several years, several decades, centuries of vicissitudes between good kings, bad kings, pagan worshiping kings, those who would try to follow the Lord. Then exile, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now they're carried away into Babylon which was one of the bestial empires spoken of by Daniel. And then on the Gentile side, around about the same time, you have the high-minded ideas of the Greeks. And you end up with Socrates via the pen of Plato talking about the philosopher king when he wrote the, the Republic. And this has shaped the ideas of many centuries and generations following of what does it mean to be a good king. And so in, in uh, Greece, you had Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and then you have to remember the fourth in this chain, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great believed that he was the philosopher king. And did you know that all the places where he went and he conquered, he was also doing scientific investigation because he believed that he loved wisdom? There wasn't a scientific investigation that put a, the equal amount of resources into discovery that Alexander did until the space race in the 50s and 60s to give you a perspective of how he manifested being a philosopher king. But yet, Alexander died. And following him, his generals all vied for power, trying to take over. And you end up with the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Assyria. And of the Seleucid Empire, you end up with this man who calls himself Epiphanes. And during the 400 years of silence where Amos had said there would be a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And the people were back in the land, but there was no spirit moving among them. Because there was an absence of the hearing of the word of the Lord, the 400 years of silence. Epiphanes comes and sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple. And then you have the Maccabees and the miracle of, of the oil of the lamp and the rededication of the temple, which brings about Hanukkah, the last of the feasts of the Jews before the time of Christ. So then, by the time that John and Jesus show up on the scene, it's been 400 years, essentially, minus Zechariah, the father of John, and some of what the Lord did there, and a remnant that was waiting. 400 years or so of silence, a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And the bestial empires were raging. 
By this time, you'd had all four of those who had been prophesied in the prophecy of Daniel. You've got the Roman Empire now, and in Judea, you have a murderous, adulterous tetrarch, Herod, and a Roman governor who was as cynical as could be. Remember, he said, what is truth? So in many ways, the Messianic context was a post-truth society. Because the scribes of Israel, who had the promises of God, who had the very words of God, now known as the Old Testament, had no authority because they didn't even believe it anymore. Because to, to a normal person's eye, all the promises had failed. All the promises were so far from the thinkable that it was just impossible that there would be an heir of David become king. There were no, no known heirs of David at that time. To where by that point, most of the things that the scribes of the Jews were teaching were just echoing what others had said before them and largely treated as if they were just myths. So when Jesus comes, just like Moses had said, one will come after me, like unto me, gets up and goes up on the mountain, emblematic of him being the greater than Moses, and says, don't think unto yourselves that I have come to abolish the law, because that was one of the thoughts, because during the time of, of by the time Jesus comes, the Pharisees were had a debate about, it. what's the Messiah going to do? Is he going to abolish the law? Is he going to revise the law? Is he going to make it deeper or applicable in different ways somehow? How is he going to deal with the law? So Jesus says, don't think unto yourselves that I come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle, which by the, before all things are consummated, he will have. So that's the messianic context. So by the time that, that he's preaching, what the people that were listening to him, about all they understood of what the norm was concerning authority was either the perversion of it, the mockery of it, the feigned attempt to secure it, or the dogmatic pretension of having it. But when they heard him preach and teach, it resounded in their soul. Because when truth hits you, you know it. You know it in here. It's visceral. It affects you. And they knew it. And they were astonished. Perplexed. And this brings me to point two. The authority of Jesus. Now, in Matthew's gospel... The context leading up to verse 29 actually starts with right before the Sermon on the Mount, verse 23 of chapter 4, where it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, 
and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and then he opened up his mouth and he taught them. And then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and, and uh, he concludes it. Austin did a good job last week concluding it. And then verse 28 of chapter 7, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, you may think that I am making too much of this authority. I'm not. And the reason why I say I'm not is because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is the king and the kingdom. And it's been said, and it's accurate, that if you get done reading Matthew's gospel and you're not looking for the kingdom, you didn't read it correctly. And one of the facets of being king is having authority. Whether that's foreign to us as Democratic Americans or not, it doesn't matter. Because we still have that longing in our hearts and our souls, somebody worthy of our fealty. Somebody worthy to direct our lives and tell us what is this thing called life and what is the meaning of it. And that's what he does. He tells us the meaning of life. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole of man. So this, this idea of authority, Matthew is the one making a big deal of it because he mentions authority here, but then... In the context of where he's going, and, and Zane was in the previous hour, and he's got next week. So uh, I, I said, and I'll say again, that Zane and I kind of have part A and part B of the context here concerning the authority of Christ. Because uh, Matthew, in the gospel, he's, he mentions the authority in 7.29, uh, and then by the time you get to chapter 8, when he, when he stops the, the weather, he says, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And then by the time you get down to nine, where he's, he's cast the demons out of the paralytics and forgiven sin, it says, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Meaning all of this, the, the miracles there are to exemplify the authority of Jesus. So concerning the authority of Jesus, it's deeper than the right to control or govern. And I'm going to do something that, that uh, I normally call as a, as a rule not to do. And I advise every teacher and preacher of the gospel that, that I've ever had opportunity to mentor or to tell, if you're going to do a word study or talk about a word, make sure and go to the source. Go to the Greek or the Hebrew of the passage and find out what that word means because translation is treason. We're not Greeks, we're not Hebrews, and all the concepts that support our words are not necessarily the same as a Greek or a Hebrew, okay? Now, having said that, concerning the word authority here, it is faithful to the Greek word. So I'm going to talk about the word authority in, in English. It comes from the Latin, not the Greek of the text, but it is faithful to the Greek of the text. And it actually helps us understand what is this thing. And for some of us, if we come from various traditions of the church, authority may be a trigger word. 
because of the abuse of authority. So Lord, help us. Jesus has authority, and what this means is much deeper than the right to control or govern. The word authority goes back to the cognate word author. We all know what an author is. An author is the originator or the progenitor, the source of whatever it is that we're talking about, right? Meaning that from the idea of what an author is, authority then is the right to dictate, govern, or control, or direct because they are the author. They are the originator, the source of whatever it is that they have authority over. Such as the scripture calls Satan, the enemy, calls him the author of confusion. Right? Means he has authority over confusion. Uh, so, Jesus has authority over the law of Moses because he was the one that gave the law to Moses. Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament is authoritative because he is the Word incarnate. Jesus' teaching on, uh, on God is authoritative because he is the Logos, the Word of God. Jesus has authority over all existence because he is the light of the world, the energy that made all things. Such as when you look at the beginning of John's gospel, you have this very high Christology called the Logos Christology, where John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then you go further down, and he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word of God incarnate, meaning when God the Father spoke everything into existence, that's the pre-incarnate Jesus. And don't just take my word for it. Let's look what Paul said when he wrote to the Colossians. Very high Christology there, starting with verse 15 of chapter 1. He said, he is the, he being Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Pause right there. When he says, in him all things hold together, that includes the atomic level. What is the atomic bond that holds everything together? Jesus. Meaning, by his very word, he could turn everything into atomic fire. That's the authority of Jesus. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the authority of Jesus. Because he is everything. 
So he has authority over everything. Now, that in, in itself is enough that we should fear him. Have reverence for him. Be in awe of him. Be terrified when we transgress him. But what's more? Is his magnanimity the things that make him great because he's the author of every good thing? He says, approach me boldly. I love you, he says. We are the crown jewel of his creation. Such that he willingly laid down his life for us. So then, that leads me to point three. Authority exemplified. So again, this, this context here in, in Matthew is all about the authority of, of Jesus, the King of Kings. And he's going to use these examples to show that Jesus has authority over teaching, over sickness, over demons, over sin. Uh, The passage given to me today, I get to talk about Jesus' authority over teaching and his authority over sickness. Zane gets the rest next week. So, the authority of Jesus' teaching. So, when you go all the way back to chapter 4 of Matthew, before the Sermon on the Mount, then the Sermon on the Mount, this is in part to show that Jesus is the greater than Moses, and then Matthew says that he had authority in his, in his teaching, not like the context that the Jews were normal used to as far as their scribes. And then the rest of the passage that I have this morning uh, of chapter 8 up to verse 17 is concerning Jesus' authority over sickness. So we find that the next thing after the statement of authority is that when Jesus comes down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, this passage is mentioned in all the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning same I, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this, this, uh, this leper, and they show various things about this leper. It's Mark's gospel who says that Jesus was moved with pity when the man said, Lord, which by the way, when he said, Lord, that is not necessarily a recognition of Jesus' divinity or Anything, it could, it's equivalent to him saying, sir, okay? Showing respect and deference to him. Lord as in master. So, sir. Uh, and says, if you will. Meaning, he didn't have any pretense to think that the Lord would deign him worthy of being healed. He simply knew that Jesus could if he would. 
And all the Gospels agree that Jesus says, I will. Being moved by pity, he did, and he touched the leper. An unthinkable thing to do. Because according to the law of Moses, this leper was to be an outcast from society, never to be touched, never to be dealt with, never to be anything other than an outcast off to die. Unless they were cleansed. And Jesus says, I will. And he touched him and he was immediately cleansed and made whole. Now, the Lord Jesus said, tell no one. Tell no one about this. Why? Why is that there? You'll find that oftentimes when the Lord has done something, he'll say, don't tell anybody. Most of the times they wouldn't obey him. And this leper is included. Matthew doesn't say it, but the other gospels say he didn't listen to him. Because instead of of obeying the don't tell, he went and told everybody. Now, here's the thing about Jesus saying don't tell. And this is fully understood in Mark's gospel. Jesus is the Davidic king, the one promised. And this idea of him keeping a secret is called the messianic secret. Because the Davidic king was not supposed to take that title until he was coronated. That's why it was hush-hush. Okay? Now, when was Jesus coronated? Yes, on the cross. Amen. On the cross. So, the result of, of Jesus healing this leper, he says, go do what was commanded by Moses, and says, for a proof to them, which in the, in the Greek, you can take this as also as an indictment against them. And so Mark and Luke show that, this, that this, uh, this leper did not show obedience to the Lord, but the Lord healed him anyway. And then next is this matter of the centurion, which you can find both here in, in Matthew, also in Luke chapter 7, verses 2 through 10. Luke actually gives a little bit more background to the centurion. Now, the centurion, centurion was a Roman official. He was a non-commissioned officer. He would have had rule over about 100. But he would also have had rulers over him. So this man very well understands authority. And, especially in Luke's gospel and in Matthew, he shows that he understands authority and appeals to an understanding of authority when he approaches Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it says that he even set ambassadors for himself to to go get the attention of Jesus. But the point is, is that Jesus, from a long distance off, not even within eyesight of this servant, speaks the word and says, as you have believed, it will be done. And immediately that, that servant was healed, which is extremely miraculous. Because what he just did was he showed, I'm not like these other healers that go around and and do healings. All I have to do is speak and it's done. I don't have to manipulate the spirits, so to speak, as some of the Jewish exorcists did. He had authority. So then uh, the, the main thing here concerning the rest of this centurion is that 
when Jesus commends the faith of the centurion, he says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And in verse 11, this is only in Matthew. I tell you, many who will come from east and west and, rec and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now what he's talking about is the great banquet up yonder after all is consummated. And what he's doing is he's making a statement of fact. Because it is and always will have been a fact that the Jews rejected Jesus. Very few of the Jewish remnant actually found salvation in Jesus. And that us Gentiles will far outnumber them in glory. There's far many more of us than there will have ever been Jews that found their Messiah. That's why Paul goes on and says, if it were possible, I'd give up my own salvation that they might be saved. But they won't. So then, next is that Jesus goes to Peter's house, and there he finds Peter's mother-in-law. This is also mentioned in Mark and Luke. All the synoptics agree that this was Peter's mother-in-law in Peter's house, and that Jesus basically set up shop there in Peter's house for this night. And in this night, not only did he heal the woman that was nigh unto death, by touching her and helping her rise up from her deathbed. And then she, in fealty to him, begins serving him. As he's set up shop there. And then all the people bring all the demon-possessed and all the sick and everybody else from the surrounding area to him. And he healed all of them. And cast out demons from all of them who were demon-possessed. And Mark and Luke add more to the story concerning the demons, he says that Jesus rebuked them and made them stay quiet. Luke's gospel goes outright and says that what they were saying is, you are the son of God. And he was like, keep your mouth shut. We're just doing our thing here. Okay? And then this, this section concludes... And again, uh, I, and Zane was in here last hour, and I, me and him had communicated this week talking about this. Uh, so I, I, I very much don't want to step on his toes. But when, Mar, Ma, when Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. When any New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage. That author expects you, as a good disciple, to know the text well enough that you know where that quote comes from and for it to invoke in you an understanding of what that text that he just brought that page is from. Right? Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering of Jesus. So when, when this little, tiny little passage that he's applying to all these healings and saying this was to fulfill, and, and in this context showing that Jesus has authority over sickness, 
he invokes for you all the suffering that Jesus was prophesied to go through. And that should be in your mind when you get to the next passage, which I won't get to preach on today. But when you read, you study, and understand that this whole thing is about the authority of Jesus. So Jesus has authority in his teaching, has authority over sickness, has authority over the demons, has authority over sin. And so then we've talked about the overall context, showing the juxtaposition over the fact that the scribes had no authority, but Jesus has authority. We show how Jesus is magnanimous, how he is great because he has the authority to do anything, but yet he showed mercy and kindness and grace and love and everything towards all of us that by all rights are worthy of death. Yet he healed them all. And then we are reminded when we look in Isaiah of the cost of that. So then, in conclusion, Lord, help us. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy of all our fealty and all our efforts, all our zeal, our lives. So, Lord, help us that we would give them to him.